Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. On this episode of Big Boys Don't Cry, we discuss the classic teen comedy She's All That. You don't have to have seen the film, but it probably helps if you have seen the film, uh, just to enjoy the podcast a little bit more. Um, so if you haven't and you do proceed, please do be aware that the plot of She's All That will be spoiled for you. Enjoy. Good morning. Good morning, man. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good. Am I doubling up or is there only one single Johnston right now? Unfortunately, there is but one Paddy Johnston in my life. Oh, that's that's a shame. Oh, having said that, you immediately doubled up at that point, as if the fates decided. How about now? Oh, that is perfect. Cool. Yeah, for some reason I have to click on the picture of my face in the preview rather than on you. I have absolutely no idea why that makes it double up. (laughs) There we go. Oh, how's um how's your week been, man? It's been yeah, it's been very busy. I've been very busy at work, um, busy with the website as well. And um this weekend I had a very boring domestic weekend, so I um basically cut down a massive hedge. Oh yeah, I saw a picture. That was quite a beastly hedge. Yeah, it's you should have seen it before. Well I think you did see it briefly when you came to visit, but like unless I deliberately sort of took you round the hedge, you wouldn't quite realise the monstrosity of it. I don't know when it was last cut. The previous owners seemed to have let it grow into something similar to a forest. Um, so I went at it with hedge trimmers and a hacksaw to actually get it down to a manageable size. So I feel very accomplished today. Oh, that's very that's very manly of you. That's a man achievement. Yeah. I feel like I grew a beard overnight, basically. <laughs> do you can you grow a beard not not to um to rubbish <laughs> your face and your abilities but i've never seen you looking anything other than fantastically clean shaven i can only grow an emo soul patch that's literally it. apart from that i have no hair follicles no i can but um i have scottish genetics which means that i have the occasional bit of ginger in it um so because my hair is very dark it then looks ridiculous when I have these little ginger patches throughout a darker beard. So I generally remain clean shaven. Um, I never get it, let it get beyond sort of designer stubbles. Yeah, I guess you could dye it. I could. I could get some just for men beard. Uh, beard, beard dye. And then you'd look like the guy from Smash Mouth. <laughs> he's got the little, he's got a little back soul patch. <laughs> spike your hair up. Uh, that, that is, yeah, I'll just spike my hair up. Then I will become Smash Mouth and... I will have accomplished one of my life's dreams. Yeah, the mo- the most important one. Yeah, you know, there's 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 lots of things on my to do list, but top one is become the singer of Smash Mouth. Yeah, well, I feel like I um I had a a nice man achievement yesterday as well, which is we went to a, a wedding yesterday, which was um one of Claire's colleagues. So it wasn't like people that I knew well at all. I'd met her once maybe, but we were she'd invited a few of her colleagues and their partners to the evening thing which was very nice. It was in some barn in the middle of nowhere in Hampshire. And um, I wore the jazz shoes again, and people were complimenting me on them left, right, and centre. Like, it was it was crazy. Even in the bathroom as well. Like, you're just having having a pee, and some, some bloke behind you is like, hey, man, love the shoes. And, like, 
when another man compliments you on your shoes in the toilet, I feel like that's when you know you've made it as a man. That's like peak man to me. Yeah, that's that's definite fashion accomplishment right there. And I'm not a hugely fashionable guy. Did did he say it like that? He did say it just like that. Yeah. Okay, that's all right cuz you'd be a bit worried if if when someone walks up to you in the toilet whilst you're peeing um and they go, "Hey man, I like your shoes." Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a come on. It was it was a genuine fashion. Yeah, unless I was very much massively misreading the situation but it didn't go anywhere from there so apart from yeah back onto the dance floor to dance to two kings of leon songs in a row for me to then proclaim that that sex on fire is a crime against music and then have to explain that to reasonable people who aren't snobs about music like me (laughs) (laughs) i don't i don't mind that that song and the other one from that era of kings of leon you somebody um the one yeah, like that that album was fine for sort of like a southern rock thing, but after that they kind of just went progressively downhill. Um yeah, so yeah, I've never been a huge fan. I liked their early stuff, but Yeah, I, I, their their early stuff was fine, and then I think they kind of yeah, um Sex on Fire and particularly You Somebody, they kind of struck something that was a little bit different from what they've done before and it's like, "Oh, that's quite interesting." Um and then after that it's like, "Oh, they're like and not very good U2, but with southern accents. And that was that's kind of what they are now. I, I would say that's completely fair. Yeah. But no, I, I really hate those songs more than anything, like any of the other stuff. I think just because they were kind of everywhere for a while. Everyone was howling them in clubs and in the street. And it's like literally every single wedding I've been to since that song came out, the band has played Sex on Fire. And it's just, uh, it's like, it's almost like it's written into the law, into the constitution that like, if you're, if you're a wedding band, you have to do that song at some point. I always used to sing it differently. So for me, it was, whoa, it hurts when I pee. (laughs) Yeah, there's actually quite a lot that you could do with that melody, I suppose, isn't there? Yeah, there's, uh, there's, you know, a flexibility to that song. That perhaps wasn't best recognised by the lyrics they chose. I think it should have been about venereal disease more obviously. Yeah, it's a big, big hit, big hit making potential in yeah the the venereal disease market. Not explored enough. <laughs> no, in pop it is music. A, it is an untapped market. You've got the tragedy of waterfalls, but there's been no real sort of like don't don't catch gonorrhea. Waterfalls by TLC. Yeah, that's about disease. Yeah, it's about HIV. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, you know, the more you know. I mostly remember them for No Scrubs. What a tune. Oh, yes. Yeah, that is a, that is an excellent, excellent song. Cool. So, we're here today to talk about She's All That. We are indeed. Cool film. Um, so, straight off the bat, what were your general thoughts on She's All That? I generally enjoyed it, yeah. And having said before that I felt like I'd seen it before, I had no recollection of it. So it was almost like seeing it for the first time. <laughs> so. It's definitely one of those movies, isn't it? Where you're like... Because I, I, I watched it a few years back and like it's not a long enough time for me to have forgotten everything that happens in the film. But literally, I'd forgotten almost everything from this movie with a few exceptions. Um, which I'll point out later later on in the film when we get into the nitty gritty. But yeah, it's one of those movies that just kind of it feels like it has 
every single person that should be in a 90s rom-com set in high school for one thing doesn't it the, the cast just reads like this is who would be in a rom-com in the 90s yeah definitely and it's a lot of people who i think actually haven't really in, endured so it, they were they were big at that time or like have done a lot of work since or it's like people you recognize or know their names but um like with a lot of them i was looking on their wikipedia pages and on their on their filmography and stuff and they have huge huge extensive filmographies and all the stuff that i have never ever seen which maybe yeah, just says that I'm yeah. lazy and I haven't seen enough stuff. But yeah, that's an interesting thing about the cast as well. Even Freddie Prince Jr., like I feel like I've hardly seen him in anything, even though everyone knows who he is. Freddie Prince Jr. is now a very accomplished video game voice actor. Yeah, I did read that on the um, Wikipedia yeah. page. He he does a lot of really good voice acting. So he's been in um, the Mass Effect series and in the Dragon Age series, which are two very, very beloved series that have a very narrative focus. Um, and he voiced one of the most favoured characters um, in the latest Dragon Age game, a guy called the Iron Bull, who's a big, beefy, uh, sort of monster-type guy who's one of your teammates. That's cool. Um, and he's he's got an eye patch, and he's really cool. Um, so, yeah, he, he's like the best character. Right, see if on Tuesday I can convince my softball team to call me the Iron Bull. <laughs> You need to talk like Freddie Prince Jr. talks in that in that game, though. I, I recommend you look up. There's some there was some really interesting um, uh, making of for Dragon Age Inquisition, um, where they showed Freddie Prince Jr. doing the voice work, and he pulls the best facial expressions whilst he's voicing the Iron Bull. It's it's amazing. Oh, it's something we should put in the show notes. Is this is what Freddie Prince Jr. looks like when he's speaking into a microphone? And it's possibly something that we should do whilst we're talking on the podcast, because it might give that added intensity to our performances. This is true. I mean, I can't see your face, but you can see mine, because somehow that's what we have to do to get the tech to work. So maybe that's a thing that a thing that I need to do, is just putting some kind of faces like that. <laughs> see, I, I am constantly gurning, just in general, in real life. I have a gurney face. Um, so, yeah. It helps you get through the day, you know, whatever you need to do. It does, you know, you know, just stop, count to 10, give it again, continue with your day. Um, so, yeah, I feel like. Um, but yeah, like this, this movie has like uh, this, this movie has so many people in it that basically appeared in late 90s rom-coms. So it's got like Freddie Prince Jr., mm. it's got Matthew Lillard, who I'm going to talk at length about later. Don't you worry about that. Um, it's got Paul young paul walker god rest as well. his soul um anna paquin um usher turns up he's amazing you've got lil kim you've got gabrielle union uh claire duval who is in everything in the 90s um and uh Dulé hill who uh, i don't know if you recognized he was the black friend of the trio of the trio of guys when they make the deal yeah he was quite he was quite funny actually yeah, he's great, and he's he played this really great role in The West Wing, and I'm not sure what else he did, but yes, it was yep. great in The West Wing. Um, but yeah, so it's got like this phenomenal cast of pure '90s, like just genericism, um, and but yeah, there's there, there's not many bits of the plot that necessarily stand out with time, so they're enjoyable to watch at the time, but then kind of fade into memory like immediately afterwards. 
Yes, I, I would agree with that. I think it's quite a it is a necessarily generic plot because it's another one, like a lot of kind of high school films or modern rom coms that claims to be based either on a Shakespeare play or on George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion slash My Fair Lady story. Which it was and it wasn't really a kind of the basic the if it takes the basic bet premise then it it kind of claims to be based on that book I think to try and give it some kind of literary merit so that people can can't people can be like oh it's not a trashy film it's based on like a literary source material it's still kind of a trashy film but that doesn't really matter but yeah that gave it a bit of genericism that I think it works in its favor while you're watching it because you know what's going to happen when and it kind of satisfies you from that point of view like like ordering a thing at a restaurant that you've ordered before and you know it's going to be good but um, yeah, that in terms of its its memorability and its endurance, it means that it does feel more generic. But because it came out in 1999, the same year as 10 Things I Hate About You, it I definitely influenced a lot of the films that followed. So if you look at stuff in the 2000s and up to the present day, you can see how the, the high school thing took the stuff that was going on in those films and other 90s ones as well, and then kind of ran with it. And that's why it feels generic, because there's so much stuff that it has influenced, but that still follows the same kind of basic ideas in a way that just ends up turning out a bit generic. So I didn't, I wasn't annoyed by the genericism of it, but it was a factor, I think, in my assessment of it. Yeah, I'd agree with you on that. It, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't have that same sort of immediate classic feel that like 10 Things I Hate About You has either. Um, so like you look at sort of like the best sort of high school movies, you've got like The Breakfast Club mean girls 10 things i hate about you clueless and she's all that kind of it feels like the rung below because it never really has any of those moments where you're sort of like fist pumping in the air like at the end of the breakfast club if you know what i mean yeah yeah there's no big song um i couldn't there wasn't any kind of big song or soundtrack attached to it was there so rather than going for popular songs that people will remember by actual bands. They instead got Stuart Copeland off of The Police to make loads of music for it, which is great. And I actually really enjoyed most of the incidental music, and it was really groovy. It was almost a bit Seinfeldy. It wasn't quite as kind of slap bass. <laughs> like, it wasn't, like, it wasn't as, like as memorable as the Seinfeld slap bass, but it was very, it was, I felt like it was getting there. And a lot of the scenes had this kind of groovy edge to them that made it feel kind of cheeky and lighthearted. But actually if the music had been a, a bit more varied, it might've felt very different and there might've been quite different emotional resonance. But yeah, I, I couldn't help the whole time. I couldn't, couldn't help comparing it to 10 Things I Hate About You. I think because it's a film that we both really love. It was the first film that we discussed on this podcast and it is such a classic and has so many, great lines and so much things so much to love about it and also has that kind of um aiming for adaptation of a literary thing but also still being a little bit trashy but fun um and yeah being the, the same released in the same year i just couldn't help but compare it and in most of the measures of comparison it didn't hold up against it which i know is very unfair but i couldn't help but do it and, and there's a lot of similarities in the plot as well so it all starts off with like a deal between two men regarding the affections of women um and then the plot line kind of follows a similar path and it's kind of making an outcast come out of her shell more into a world that she's not necessarily familiar with and doesn't want to be familiar with um embarrassment at a party realization of the betrayal eventual resolution so kind of the generic plot structure of the two movies is very very similar but they handle it in 
slightly different ways but stick to the same sort of path um and 10 things i hate about you just does it better really i just think it it's a better film all round yeah i think a lot of it is to do with the cast as well so obviously heath ledger has died god rest his soul but he was very much on the up when he died um and the way that 10 things about i hate about you started his career and he kept going and you could i think you could argue the same about julia styles i mean she's she's been very consistent she's done a lot of really really great things um have you seen riviera that thing that's on at the moment i've not seen it yet no but it looks amazing I haven't seen it either, but it looks really, really good. I keep seeing trailers with her looking very kind of um, very chic and arty and and looking dangerous. And I'm like, yeah, I definitely want to watch that. But I think, um, yeah, 10 Things just had a a better cast and was put together better. And it had, as well as the generic stuff, there's all like so many more kind of set pieces and scenes that were really good. Like the, like I said, the dance scene and the party scenes and the paintballing scene and stuff. Although there are a few kind of small scenes that deviated from that plot that were a bit like that. And she's all that, that I enjoyed like the, um, the scene where it's, it's kind of like a first date with, um, what's Freddie Prince Jr.'s character called? Um, Oh, uh, Zach, Zach, uh, Zach and Lainey, Lainey Boggs. And, um, they go to this like performance art thing and he gets up on stage and he's kicking the hacky sack around that, that tickled me. Um, it's, I think it's just hacky sack is just something that I find really really funny I don't know why what I like is that he sort of she she sort of gets him in, in the shit basically um, deliberately so because she wants to kind of test him um, and uh, it's really funny because it's this really stupid performance art piece beforehand that she's involved in and like then she kind of throws him up on stage and he doesn't know what to do. So he just kind of ad-libs talking about playing hacky sack whilst playing hacky sack. Yet they bring up this kind of like ambient space age music. They got all this dramatic lighting on the go and like it kind of turns it into something that was kind of of similar quality to the serious performance arts piece that came before it. And like... It's all terrible, but it's just something really funny about the way that he managed to sort of like stumble onto something that the audience appreciated so well. Yeah, I felt I felt like that was actually the most intelligent part of the film because it was a, actually a really good send up of the pretentiousness of a lot of performance art and especially kind of high school and art school age people when they're trying to put together performance art and make it meaningful often do just end up with this kind of weird nonsense and it was quite a good send-up of that it reminded me of um you know in the tv show spaced when brian has the ex-partner vulva who's <laughs> played by david walliams and they go to the performance it reminded me a lot of that actually yeah that it was very similar also to the um there's a great episode of friends where um where joey gets them all tickets to this sort of like one woman show um and sort of basically to dob the minute so that he can go away on his own and have his own party. And Chandler's the only one who turns up because he's the only one who believes him and everyone else sort of like figures out what's going on. It's like, no, we're coming to your party. And yeah, it has the same kind of thing where it's just like incredibly intense people with the confidence of their own art, but not quite hitting the mark when it comes to the actual quality of it. Yeah. Or making it be really meaningful beyond the medium being the message. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I enjoyed that scene quite a lot. 
And there were a few other things that I really, really liked. Um, I really loved Kieran Culkin's performance as well. Didn't mention him. He's one of my he's one of my faves. Yeah, he's great in this as the younger brother of Lainey. Um, and and th- that results in one of the best scenes in the movie in not a highbrow or intelligent way whatsoever, where he's being picked on by these two punk kids at lunch. Oh, the um, the gratuitous um, pube scene. Yes, the gratuitous pube scene. So uh, he's being picked on... Which is the name of my new ska punk band. <laughs> Just that's, that's the first album name of Smashed Biscuits. <laughs> gratuitous pube scene. No, I felt like that's the kind of the kind of band that would open for Real Big Fish. <laughs> Who still seem to be touring all the time. They they just keep going and going and going, don't they? See, I think gratuitous pube scene, that's gonna be sort of like um the band that's the third support act to Dillinger Escape Plan, who's the local band. Yeah. Doing a sort of hardcore punk thing. The promoter got them on the bill just to get that last ten people through the door. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um but yeah, so this this scene is amazing. Um, in a completely lowbrow humour way. So these two punks are picking on poor old Rory Culkin and um, they they sort of are pushing him around and they're like trying to show him a dirty magazine and he's not interested and they're like, don't you like girls? That kind of thing. Um, and whilst one of them's doing that, the other one like pulls a load of pubes out of his pants and puts it on, on Rory Culkin's lunch, which is this pizza. And Freddie Prince Jr. comes through. And it's a lot of pubes that come from one person. It looks like... It looks like a loofah. <laughs> Pizza loofah. Um, and uh, and then Freddie Prince Jr. comes in. And Freddie Prince Jr.'s character in this, he's the archetypal jock type. He's also incredibly intelligent at the same time, but he's sort of like, you know, he's like the Mr. Perfect of this high school. And he takes long, one look at this scene. And because he's friends with Rory Culkin at this point, because he's been spending so much time around Laney, he sort of looks at these two punks and basically is just like, you stop doing that or there's going to be trouble and I'm going to beat the crap out of you. And so they stop. And then he makes the one who's put the pubes on the pizza eat the pube pizza. Um, and then makes the other guy eat the other person's pubes by eating the pube pizza. And it's it's the one thing that I remembered about this film going into watching it again. It's like, oh yeah, this is the one where Freddie Prince Jr. makes that guy eat his own pubes. Which perhaps... <laughs> <laughs> It's perhaps not the lasting legacy that she's all that wanted to have, but but this is a, a movie that is synonymous with Freddie Prince Jr. High School and Pube Pizza, and that those are the main takeaways. Yeah, the reason that that is the takeaway is because it's so gratuitous. It's the similar to what we were talking about earlier on as the the Judd Apatow problem, um, the bridesmaids problem, where people remember the shitting and the puking scene because it's long and gratuitous, but that's not what the film is about. But people, things are often sold on those kind of moments because it's kind of schoolyard gossipy things that are easy to talk about with people. Oh, did you see the pube scene? Yeah, man, it was great. You know, it's kind of, it's those are the unfortunately the moments from these films that endure because people don't go into them wanting to, for it to have a kind of emotional and intellectual impact on them. They want to be entertained, and that kind of stuff is is entertaining. But it's um, it's the um, the pube guy is the Shermanator from American Pie. And I um yeah, I enjoyed yeah. that very much. So American Pie must have been a couple of years after that, I guess. Yeah, I think American Pie was about two thousand, two thousand and one. Um yeah. yeah, so yeah, it was a little bit after this. So this was his pre 
Valkyrie Shermanator performance. <laughs> yeah, but he's he's great. He's very recognisable because he's got a sort of really long face, and he he's always some kind of character who's going to have some kind of horrible shit done to him in these kind of films. Like he's going to have to eat pubes or or something, or he's going to be humiliated. So I feel very sorry for that actor whose name I can't remember. Yeah, it's it's the same. He's he's always going to be. I, th- I think he is perpetually like the the loser high school kid. I don't think I've seen him in anything else where he wasn't a loser high school kid who had horrible things done to him. Yep, me neither. Um, also, Kieran Culkin's character is called Simon, which is interesting because friend of the podcast Adam Molesky has a theory that there are no Americans called Simon. And um, I know it's a fictional character and not a real person, but we have genuinely sat around for ages trying to think of an American man called Simon and been unable to name one. Whereas you can name name about 50 like English guys called Simon. It's just, can you think of any Americans called Simon? Oh, it's, that's true, actually. One of the chipmunks is called Simon. Does that count as an American? He is American, I guess so, but he's yeah. also a fictional talking chipmunk. <laughs> Alvin Simon Theodore, yeah. Also, I think, are they supposed to be like nerd names? I don't know because aren't there Alvin's the cool one then Simon is the geeky one and then Theodore is the one who eats everything oh yeah yeah so Simon I feel like it's supposed to be a geek name yeah yeah I think so maybe maybe that's why I'm currently looking up people called Simon in fact let me go to IMDB and see what comes up when I put in Simon (laughs) you're on the Simon room there might be something to this because I don't I can't think of any people called. Or are you on reddit.com slash r slash American Simons? American Simon. <laughs> the best subreddit. Yeah, that's weird. Um, the the one that comes up is Simon Helberg, who's the guy from The Big Bang Theory. Ah, I do, I do not watch that show. I, I do not watch it either. Um, and yeah, looking through this, British people... Dutch people, Israeli people. God, this is scary. Is Simon just a name that never made it to America? Well, that that's that obviously didn't. Yeah, this is incredible. This this has blown my mind that there there are no American Simons. If you know any American Simons, dear listeners, please let us know. Yeah, genuine people, not fictional characters. Not chipmunks, real people. Yeah. Um. There is a um former competitive pair skater called Simon Schnappier. What's pair skating? Is that skating on a pair? I guess it's like figure skating, like like team figure skating, duet figure, sta- figure skating. Oh, two, two people in a pair. I thought even a pair like the fruit. <laughs> Just skating on a pair or skating wearing pairs. Yeah, if there are the suit made out of pairs. <laughs> or just a giant suit that looks like a pair, like the yeah. little what pair. <laughs> yeah okay so we've got a competitive skater this is this is already scraping the barrel and and the guy from the big bang and the guy from the big bang theory not one of the main guys from the big bang theory like not the not not the ones that people immediately recognize as being the main people i think he's like one of one of the four geeks but not the most famous geek but i would i would like to have that as my my like facebook profile description one of the four geeks, but not the main geek. <laughs> I think that's yeah, that's a pretty good. That's a pretty good thing to have on your on your tombstone, isn't it? Not the main geek, but one of the geeks. My yeah, my current one is um, 
a Canadian grandpa trapped inside an English hipster's body, which is something that my Canadian friend Brenner called me. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. I'm keeping that. Mine, mine used to. Mine now is just a list of things that I'm promoting. So Game Rant, uh, Titans and Kings and Palomino Club, and then this podcast. But I used to have um, a send-up of all those people that write... Uh, uh, views on here do not reflect the views of my employer and stuff like that. As mine said, uh, views here are entirely consistent with those of our reptilian overlords. Yeah. Speaking of reptilian overlords, did you get around to listening to any of the Flat Earth podcasts? Because I have to say now that I that I didn't. So we might have to save that for another time. No, I didn't either. I I did I did get stuck watching lots of documentaries about David Icke though. Um. Which was which was very fascinating. Looking at that that crazy, crazy, crazy man. I watched a few clips of him, or like listened to a little bit of some of his lectures on YouTube, and he speaks really slowly, and always leaves like really long pauses, and he always has this kind of like wry quality to the way that he talks that makes me think that he is just massively trolling everyone, and that, that that's what he's been doing for his whole life, and now he's so deep in the troll hole that he just can't stop. Yeah. It's it's a weird one, isn't it? But but what's strange about it is that like, what would he get out of doing that? I don't know because he can't. Does he make money off this shit? Well, he does make money off it. He he goes to he does lots of presentations on it. He writes books that conspiracy nuts buy. Um, and like the other, um, but like he was already very successful because he was a he was a footballer. And then he was a um, a TV personality doing like sports commentary and stuff like that. So he already had a pretty st- solid standing in the media world. And then he kind of just blew it all up by claiming to be the return of Jesus, and that he was that, a footballer. Yeah, yeah, he was a goalkeeper. I did not know that. Yeah. What, like in the Premier League? I, it was pre Premier League, but yeah. Um, let me let me have a look at who he. Oh, I, I, the first I just did a search to get up his Wikipedia entry so I can so I can tell you what teams he played for. And David Icke's sort of like subtext on his on his website is uh, exposing the dream world we believe to be real. Um, what? Yeah, but so so the latest thing that David Icke believes, from what I understand from this documentary I watched, is that the moon is actually hollow. And is filled with reptilians who are beaming down radio waves to stop us from realising the truth. <laughs> hollow moon. Yes, hollow moon theory. Um, but but what's funny about David Icke is that like I was watching one of these documentaries and uh, he was being interviewed by someone who someone from Vice who is also a conspiracy theorist. Um, and he asked, oh, well, what's going to be the next way in which we, we suppress people? Um and uh he said oh well it's going to be all about um governments suppressing freedom of speech through the internet they're going to they're going to suppress what we can access on the internet and they're going to do it in the name of protecting us against terror and things like that and like this was about 3 or 4 years ago this documentary was made and what's interesting is that since that point that's exactly what has been happening in the UK and it's like jesus christ david ike just said something accurate What's going on with the world? Maybe, maybe there are reptilians living in the moon who are trying to trying to beam radio waves at us. I definitely feel like he's got a point about the Tories being lizards, if nothing else. <laughs> I don't know where he stands on Trump, because quite a lot of conspiracy nuts love Donald Trump. Yeah, because he's willing to entertain their wackadoodle ideas, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. 
That's all that, that's all that it takes to get a conspiracy person to love you. Cuz 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 he invited Infowars along to press briefings, didn't he? Infowars being the website um where the person who runs it in order to get out of court proceedings admitted that he makes up a character for Infowars and it should not be considered as journalism. Um and who also believes that Sandy Hook was an inside job and that all those kids are still alive. Yeah. I mean, Stuart Lee makes that very same argument about his um, his onstage persona as a stand-up comedian, which I think is fair. That he's like his Stuart Lee the comedian is not the same as Stuart Lee the person. But I don't think you can get away with that if you're a journalist. Like that's the idea that you can extend that idea. That guy is a proper nut, Alex Jones. I I I, I he he is proper mental yeah it was to do with his kids being taken away from him and not losing access to his children and as part of the proceedings they sort of brought up his his family life because he acts like a nutter at home basically as well so he's quite an unstable individual and um <laughs> and his defense was uh everything i do with Infowars is performance art and should not be considered as me or considered as journalism <laughs> we should which you know that that is a spectacular defense mechanism to claim that everything you do is actually not real. Has anyone taken that literally and then started like reviewing every episode of his show and just be uh, like as if it were performance art and sort of evaluating it against artistic quality? <laughs> maybe we should. Maybe, maybe the whole thing is like um, it's like uh, the the movie of Starship Troopers. Which have you ever seen the film Starship Troopers? I actually have not. No, I've always meant to, and I've always meant to read the book as well. Actually, it's sitting on my shelf. It's amazing. The book itself is like a love letter to fascism, written by Robert Henlon, and it's all sort of like military power is right. You shouldn't uh, you shouldn't automatically have the right to vote. You should earn it through your duty to your country. Um, women should be the uh, goal of men who get sent to war so that when they come back they get a good wife and women should be pilots and not fight on the ground and it's really a weird 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 book um, and so they started making this this movie of it and they chose Paul Verhoeven to direct it who directed great films like Robocop um, and like Total Recall which which are both sort of like sci-fi movies with intense violence that make a real huge satirical effort to sort of like um undermine things in society so robocop's great because it's an incredibly gory oh, so movie good. about a, a I've guy watched that with turned you. into a yeah it's one it's my it's i think it's a perfect movie it's one of those few films where i think there is nothing in this that i would change and there's nothing that could make it better and there's nothing that could make it make its point better than it already does um because it's a movie that's um both about a guy who turns into a robot who shoots bad guys in the dick and it's it's a huge satirical look at um, yuppie culture in the 1980s and at companies getting involved in government operations through buying out military contracts and police contracts and stuff like that. And it's this huge, great satire about consumerism, violence in the media, uh, corporate America. It's brilliant. Yeah, I love the way that it's a send-up of corporate greed. It's just It does that really, really well. And, but it's also really funny as well. Yeah, it's it's a hilarious movie and it's there's hilarity in bits where you don't expect it. So there's a scene very early on where they unleash this this robot called Ed 209, which is going to be a law enforcement robot that's basically just a big walking tank with two machine guns and a rocket launcher. Um, and they test it out and they give one of the um, executives in the boardroom a, a, a gun and ask him to point it at Ed 209. 
and the robot glitches out and fills him with about 60 rounds of high caliber machine gun fire and he's like this guy's lying dead on the table and like the immediate reaction like there's there's three stages of absolute hilarity in the reaction so the first thing is someone goes somebody call a paramedic to this guy who's now basically a mound of stew lying on a table um then uh then there's um someone who says uh that like the big ceo of the company then turns to the person responsible and goes oh i'm very disappointed in you um and the guy goes oh no i'm sure it's just a glitch <laughs> with no regard for the guy who just got killed and then um someone else steps in and is like oh well my program's going really well and this is the guy who's behind robocop and it's like okay you can proceed with it i want a presentation on what you've got planned and we'll see what we can do and as they're walking out of the boardroom um as the guy who he walked in in walked in with who is now dead and sort of turns to his other friend and goes you see that johnson that's what you got to do you've got to see an opportunity and you've got to take it <laughs> and it's just like oh it's such it's such a good movie um and so paul verhoeven has this huge background of dealing with satire and violence and in very subtle ways and very effective ways um and so then they asked him to do starship troopers and what paul verhoeven did was he looked at the original book and decided we're going to show this society that Robert Henlon has created, this fascist, futuristic society that he sees as a utopia, and we're going to deliver it as written in here with a few changes, um, but more sort of like aesthetic things and sort of like cultural and philosophical things. Um, And we're just going to show it to people and then they can make up their mind about what they think of it. Um, And so basically it's a huge satire of like military fascism um, of sort of like the promotion of violence and uh, the promotion of pure racism. And it's like, it's a really interesting film because it's quite obvious when you watch it that that's what he's trying to do. So basically, like, the the whole start of the movie um, basically plays on Nazi propaganda films from the 1940s. And it basically just, just follows the exact structure of these films to sort of show people being signed up to do their duty um for their for their nation in this fight against the evil bugs and they use lots of um derogatory phases for these these insectoid aliens that kind of feel similar to racist terms being used um against people during various wars throughout throughout human history um and sort of like it plays out like a is that like the prawn thing in district nine yeah exactly like the prawn thing so they they, and you see sort of like there's all these scenes where like they're showing kids being indoctrinated back on earth like they they find a load of cockroaches and they're stomping them going like, yeah kill the bugs kill the bugs and like they cut to people going like the only good bug is a dead bug and stuff like that um and then sort of like the whole thing is about these high school students who decide that they're going to join up to the military to go and fight these bugs because they want their citizenship um and it's all about them sort of like at the beginning they're being brainwashed into believing that military might is the only might that matters um, they get taken into the military. They see awful things. They see their friends being torn apart, um, and they they slowly become more and more hardened, and they become more and more indoctrinated into um, into this way of life, into this fascist lifestyle. So much so that like there's such obvious parallels as one of the characters appears later on in the film wearing basically an SS uniform, um, having been promoted up to this level in sort of like the intelligence community. Um, so it's really obvious that Paul Verhoeven saying these people are these people are 
pretty bad people. You know, this is not a good society that we should be in, but I'm going to show you it as it would be. Um, But nobody really got it. So lots of people at the time said like, oh, Paul Verhoeven's made this movie and it's promoting fascism. It's like, no, that's not what it's doing at all. Did you not actually watch this film? Um, So I'm kind of wondering whether maybe that's what Alex Jones is doing all along. And maybe Alex Jones is making a satire of right wing conspiracy theories, but just nobody is getting it. It's possible. It's more it's, it's actually more than possible. But that's always kind of that's the top gear defense, isn't it? It's the oh, I'm saying loads of stupid and offensive stuff. But it's it's satire. Yeah. The joke like if you don't think if you are offended by it, the joke's on you. And that kind of takes away anyone's right. It's an easy out, isn't it? Oh, I'm sorry you're offended by my satire. Yeah. How did we get, how did we get onto that? Oh no, I asked you I asked you if you'd gotten around to any of the Flat Earth podcasts. It was my it was my fault. Although I think this is still only sort of five to ten minutes of conspiracy tangent versus twenty minutes of opening with it in the last episode. So if anyone's still here, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. And thank you for allowing me to go off on a rant about Paul Verhoeven because he's one of my favourite directors. Yeah, that's that's um, really cool. And, you know, whenever I'm given a chance, I will just ramble on and on about him. Um, so, yeah, let's go back to She's All That then, having disappeared off that subject for a very long time. I realised that I, I said that there weren't any kind of memorable songs, but of course, the um, the song Kiss Me by Sixpence None the Richer was kind of the main song attached to it that plays when she's walking down the stairs after her, her transformation into beauty, which happens by way of taking off the glasses, because of course, wearing glasses is like, well, ugly, yeah? Yeah, I was hoping you'd bring up this scene, actually, because this is, I think, the worst bit of the film, and also the most most generic rom-com scene i think i've ever seen in my life so you've got um you've got laney boggs played by rachel lee cook who is the the heroine of the film she is a arty person who doesn't conform to traditional sort of like high school dress and things like that yeah um and they're going off to this party yeah she wears dungarees all the time like everyone did in the 90s um particularly mario you know that trendsetter um (laughs) yeah it's a mario fashion and um and yeah, she's like, oh, I don't have anything to wear to the party, though. Um, and so uh, Freddie Prince Jr. sort of unveils this little red dress. And then his sister comes in, played by Anna Paquin, who's sort of like a makeup artist kind of person, um, and sort of takes her upstairs and like gives her a haircut and plucks her eyebrows and gives her a makeover and gets her into this dress. And then she walks down the stairs and is like, oh, my God, she's so beautiful. It's like yeah (laughs) is that really the (laughs) the message that you want to show is hey just put on a skimpy outfit and take off your glasses and people will find you attractive yeah it's not exactly progressive or feminist or whatever it's like oh the transformation from being herself to being someone else is the thing that makes her beautiful yeah that's that's obviously a really terrible bullshit message what i do like is that freddie prince jr i think was already starting to find her interesting before then um, so sort of like you have a look at sort of like the the people outside of their relationship between them who seem to sort of like judge her better based on how much they see of her body. So like they go swimming and she takes off her clothes and she's got a swimsuit on. And that's when Paul Walker's character, who is the, um, you know, the the archetypal high school dickhead in a rom-com. That, that, that's who he is in this. Yeah, um, he comments on her boobs. And he's, yeah, and it's like, she's got big boobs, man. And that's basically <laughs> it. Um, and then again, he becomes more interested in her when she's wearing like the red dress. And you see that like the friendship group of Freddie Prince Jr. is paying her more attention and sees her more as sort of like a 
an actual person. But with Freddie Prince Jr., it seems as though it happens through their conversations instead, which is quite nice. Definitely. And that means that you do believe it as well. You do believe that he's, be- he's starting yeah. to become attracted to her because that's obviously the main thing that would make would completely ruin a plot that relies on that. It being the, oh, it was about a bet. I'm sorry, but I love you really. Like th- that's the, that's it in a nutshell. And if you didn't believe that the, that the love did come from, from some of those, so those scenes, then it wouldn't work. It's similar to how the paintball scene in 10 Things I Hate About You, where they're kind of asking around and having fun, that you can feel the genuine chemistry between them. Because I feel like there wasn't as much chemistry between um, Zach and Lainey, but it was still there, especially mostly the scenes where he just kind of keeps showing up at her house and he's just there, like, chatting with Kieran Culkin and her dad and getting the soccer team to come and clean the house and stuff. And, like, those kind of things were believable in, in a nice kind of light-hearted way. Yeah, I agree. I think like there's enough there. It's not got the same level of um, of sort of connection that you'd expect from a movie like this, and it's not sort of it's not it's not as done done as well as like Ten Things I Hate About You or Clueless, um, but it's still there in a fashion. Um, it just seems to be sort of be overridden by other things um, that aren't necessarily as important to the overall plot. Um, yeah. But there's quite a lot of there's quite a lot of weird tangents in this movie. So the other one that I'd like to speak about is um, Matthew Lillard and uh, and his role in the film. Uh, so did you enjoy Matthew Lillard in this movie? Because it's one of the things that I bigged up about it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. He was great. I felt like I recognised him from somewhere, but I couldn't sell, tell where. And I was looking through his filmography trying to pick up something else that I'd seen him in and I couldn't find it, but he definitely was really, really good as the, the kind of, <laughs> as Zach calls him, the dyslexic volleyball <laughs> <Yeah>. guy <laughs> from The Real World, which was a show that never really made it over here, but I was aware of it from people having talked about it in, in um, comics. There's a really good graphic novel called Pedro and Me, um, about the guy Pedro Zamora, who was on that show, who died of AIDS, um, which is a really, really amazing graphic novel. I can't remember who it's by, but it's really good. Um, I'll put it in the show notes. But yeah, to to kind of have the link into that show, The Real World, really, really dates it, because I think that was the first kind of real reality TV show where they just were like, let's stick a bunch of people in a house and put cameras on them and see what happens. And then we followed that up with Big Brother a few years later and started to really make it into a, a very, very popular format for toilet tv but yeah his his playing of a reality tv star was actually a really really good send-up of it that was obviously very ahead of its time because there have been films that i think have done that since that haven't probably even done it half as well as he did like how he's got that huge tv in his room and they're in bed and like trying to get it on he's just trying to watch himself on the tv like that that did tickle me actually that tickled me quite a lot that that really reminded me of bojack horseman yeah um it was just straight like a scene out of bojack horseman where he's sort of watching back on his like previous accomplishments whilst in bed with someone um and yeah i love matthew lillard in this film because he just kind of personifies that kind of celebrity out of nowhere mindset that was quite prevalent with the rise of reality tv um and sort of like his belief that then he is allowed to do whatever he wants without any repercussions um and like everyone there's sort of like everyone seems to be initially impressed when his name is mentioned but then whenever someone gets to know him they're disgusted by him 
So when he turns up at the party, sort of like people are saying like hi, and they all seem very excited. And then he pulls out this spectacular dance number out of nowhere when his song comes on, but being played by the DJ, and he's just dancing around like an absolute loon, and like everyone's just kind of giving it kind of like a WTF look. Yeah, that is a very um, good scene, and it's yeah, it's 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 a great scene, and he's really he's really good in the whole movie. Um, but I, I've been a huge fan of Matthew Lillard for ages, so like. The first thing I saw him in was he's one of the one of the characters in the first Scream. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like I he, saw he, that he when I was at really, school, but I haven't seen it since. Again, I can't remember what happens. It's a great film still. Um, quite a lot of those those sort of like slasher films that kind of like were kind of like a post horror sort of renaissance. They haven't aged very well, but Scream is still intelligent and funny and scary and quite unnerving to watch. So it's still it's still a per, a, a really good movie, Scream. Um, and then he's in a movie called SLC Punk, which I think you'd like. I haven't heard of that. Um, which is sort of sort of like it's all sort of like about the punk scene, um, and yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's quite interesting. All about punks in Salt Lake City. All oh, right. Um, when was it made? Uh, back in the late nineties, sometime. Um, but yeah, he's one of those actors where like he he's really good in everything, and he always gives a really sort of like energetic performance that kind of really brings something else to a film um he's he's shaggy in the scooby-doo movies um yeah that that was where i remembered him yeah and he's great as shaggy he like he is like perfect in that role in a way that perhaps nobody else in that cast is um yeah I think those those films, maybe the first one just about did justice to the cartoons, but after that, yeah, it's like you'd see them on TV and like when you're flicking channels and see like five minutes and go, Jesus, this is awful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, they're not that great, but he's great in them. And I think after that, he went on to voice Shaggy in like the cartoon because they liked him so much and he enjoyed doing it so much that he just that decided sense. to just keep going with it, which is nice. Um and then, yeah, recently he's he was in that show, The Bridge, which I've heard was very good, but I never got around to seeing it, which came out a couple yeah, of I years ago. Yeah, I heard good things about that. Um, but yeah, so he's yeah, he's an actor that I really like, and I think this is this is one of his best performances. Um, yeah, the dance where, scene yeah. was the pinnacle f- for me because um, it also establishes the rule that at the the party scene in the in the high school. Um, romantic comedy movie that always comes sort of about just over halfway through the film when you want to amp up the tension a little bit. Although I think it's a bit earlier on in 10 Things I Hate About You, but someone has to do a big explosive dance that either humiliates them or like moves some of the action along. In 10 Things, it's Julia Stiles gets up on the table and she's doing the kind of sexy dance and everyone's like, wow, wow, who knew? And then with this, it's all like, it was like, oh, yeah, of course, that guy's like a dancing douchebag in a shiny suit. <laughs> yeah, he's wearing such a shiny outfit. It's great. I would wear that shiny suit. Yeah, it's so good. Um, but but this movie actually has two dance numbers in it. Does it? So at the end, at the prom, uh, they they play um, Fatboy Slim. Yeah. And they do this choreographed dance with all of the high schoolers that definitely look older than anybody else yeah. at the high school who happen to definitely not be professional dancers they brought in for that one scene. The funk soul brother. I, I still think that that song is quite a catchy tune. I think it was around a lot 
around that time when we were finishing up primary school. And I have a lot of time for Fatboy Slim generally because he was the bass player in the House Martins, who were just a band that oh, yeah. my dad was yeah. a huge fan of and like, growing up would just played in our house all the time. So, yeah, we knew him as Norman Cook, bassist in the House Martins, before he went on to become Fatboy Slim. But I think that was a well-chosen 90s song for that that dates it in a very nice way. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and it's it's, yeah, it's a very nice scene, actually, in general. Um, but yeah, like one of the things that I find about this movie though, is that do you, do you agree with me in that in comparison to some of the other rom-coms we've watched, the, the stakes at the end don't feel that big. I, I kind of yeah, feel like I, the movie I had do. peaked before the end came along. Definitely. I mean, you kind of, you wanted them to get back together, but you actually felt like it wouldn't have mattered if they didn't. Because he was going to go off to some good university to make his dad proud. Um, She got the recognition of the art teacher, which helped her get into art school. So it's like, actually, it would have been a more realistic end for them to not not get together and for them to go and find themselves at college, which is what probably what happens in real life a lot more. So, it, yeah, none of there wasn't any kind of huge jeopardy because even though you believed that they had fallen in love over the course of the bet thing, it still didn't feel so all consuming. And I think that maybe perhaps is down to the film having lots of really fun scenes with the other characters, perhaps at the expense of developing their relationship. I don't know, really. But, yeah, I didn't feel particularly whelmed, should we say, by the by the end. Yeah, it's it's. um like and and like the final scene is nice where like Zach's like oh I'll honor the agreement that I made with with douchebag Paul Walker and like he walks up to accept his graduation in the buff yeah and it's like yeah that was that, was, like, that was a fun scene to end it on but you do kind of think like there's 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 no real resolution apart from the fact that they get together in that what's going to happen to them you know that he's going to go off to some college somewhere she's going to go off to an art school because she's gained the recommendation of her art teacher but like then they've got this summer together because this is the end of high school so they've got a summer before they go away so what's going to happen in that summer to their relationship yeah and there's no real kind of like who knows and you're left wondering yeah there's no real kind of like oh yeah that's that this is definitely going to happen either way and you're left kind of wondering but at the same time you're like eh, i don't really care that much because you don't feel like um unlike 10 things i hate about you and sorry to bring up this movie again no it's, we have to because it's it's good um you feel as though every character has every every like heroic character in that movie has learned something and developed from it so you've got um you've got the lead to where he has sort of learned to allow himself to become more attached to people and allow himself to show a kinder side to his personality um, and she has learned to open up more to other people and that there are people out there who she can trust and that it's okay for her to sort of not keep herself away from other people. Um, you've got uh, the sister who's learned that just because someone's cool and handsome, it doesn't mean that they're the only possible romantic interest she can have. And in fact, some of them might be a dick. Um, yeah, does she does she get off with the fat friend in the last scene? Um, she. There's, there's a bit, I remember them talking in the party, but I was also I was doing my hair to go out to the wedding during this scene, so I wasn't fully paying attention. Oh, sorry, I was talking about ten things I hate about you here, but oh, ten yeah, things, they do, right? They they yeah, do kind yeah. of 
they do kind of um i think they get together the the guy the, uh, uh, that's actually a really understated joke in this film which i think they could have done more with is there's this this blonde overweight friend um of laney whose name is jesse jackson and he just mentions yeah. it once and and it's just like <laughs> what there's just this one character called jesse jackson out of nowhere and they never make any sort of like no not the civil rights leader or anything yeah. like that they just kind of leave it like oh i'm jesse jackson and that's it completely unexplained it's just a really weird little yeah just a completely weird little joke that they never kind of do anything with but i I really hated his character because every time he came on there was like just a lot of endless like really cheap fat jokes directed at him it's like guys come on even in 1999 we could do better than that oh yeah there's that whole thing about him being out of breath from running everywhere and it's like "Mm." it's like well i don't know whether it's down to him like being asthmatic or whether it was like a fat joke. But either way, it's just like, this is completely unnecessary. Just cut it out entirely. Um, and it didn't really do anything. But sorry, go back Go back to 10 things. Yeah, so in, so in 10 things, you've got like, um, everybody has a resolution. Like Joseph Gordon-Levitt learns to stand up for himself um, as well. So like all of the, like, the four main heroic characters in 10 things, they develop by the end of the film. So it feels like that resolution at the end is kind of like, you know, oh yeah, people have learned everything and it doesn't matter that high school's coming to an end or anything like that because like, you know, they've all developed as human beings. Whereas I don't think the same thing can be said about She's All That. So I think Freddie Prince Jr. has learned something about himself in that status isn't everything, don't be a dick. But it's actually, it's not that established that he is super douchey actually. There's no like huge jock thing at the beginning, apart from him walking around and being like, hey, how's it going to a few people? And that feels relatively low-key compared to some of the douchey jockness, I guess, in other films. Yeah. I felt like actually his character wasn't enough of a douche jock for it to have that kind of impact. You actually felt like he was a relatively reasonable guy from the off. And maybe that's because he's quite a che- sort of nice, cheeky-looking guy. He doesn't look like a dick. And also because he's the captain of the soccer team, which isn't really the same as like the American football or baseball team. Although obviously I'm biased towards baseball, but I felt like that was like, yeah, and and he's he's like a um he he's like the uh he's a jock, but then like he makes this deal which isn't very nice with Paul Walker, um that he's going to make someone of his choosing respectable and into a high school prom queen, um and that he's going to like romanticize them and everything like that blah 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 blah. Um so that's not very nice but you kind of think like that's partly to do with having been left by his girlfriend. So it's kind of like this rebound need to establish himself as a masculine dominant figure again. Um and so yeah, so that's only the really the real thing. And when he's walking around saying hi to everybody, everyone seems to be quite nice about him. He doesn't seem like he's someone to be feared in the school. It seems like he's someone who is beloved. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's the interesting thing. It's like, do people like you or do people fear you? And so often the idea of the jock character is based on fear and bullying. And actually, there wasn't any real bullying, apart from obviously the scene where the the bullies have the pubes and then they're, they're kind of shown up. So from that point of view, I think that was actually kind of nice. And it wasn't like you're supposed to suddenly try and like the bully character because oh, they've learned to not be a dick anymore. And then you kind of still don't really want to like them, but you feel like you have to because they've proven themselves to be romantically just about okay. Whereas it was different with Freddie Prince Jr. Yeah. And and like, so he's still got that kind of like 
focus on status because the whole thing, like he's upset about being left by his girlfriend at the beginning of the film. But at the same time, it's it's sort of like, oh my God, I'm not going to be, I might not be prom king and this might ruin my reputation and that kind of stuff. So he's learned not to be worried about his reputation and to instead just be himself and sort of like do what he wants to do and don't worry about what other people think. And that's like, you know, that's a, that's a decent enough message. I don't think that Lainey learned anything from the movie. She doesn't have any kind of sort of like realisation by the end. And I can't think of any other characters who necessarily did learn anything from the events of She's All That. No, me neither. <laughs> I guess she learnt to not wear her glasses if she wants to look attractive. She learnt to, to make personal art instead of things to do with stuff in the outside world to get the approval of her teacher. Yeah, which is a thing that is very much thrown in there at the very end to kind of tie that up as a nice, neat plot point. Yeah, So, and I think that's one of the reasons why the ending falls so flat is that there's no real development of anybody. And, and in films like that, you even need a lot of very, very, very funny jokes and funny set pieces or you need like something to really make the movie stand out and this doesn't really have any of that no and i think it highlights that yeah the deficiency of a lot of these films and why people often dismiss them as being kind of generic chick flicks because often there are ones like this where it falls a bit flat because it's not funny enough and it can't rely on the the learning and the the change of the the plot of the dramatic side of it enough to put to make it pull its weight i guess yeah, yeah, and I think that's the main that's the main problem with this movie. It's never yeah, it's it's never been able to um to to have that lasting legacy that perhaps, you know, other movies of its ilk have had. It doesn't have that power behind yeah. it. But I still I still found it enjoyable and I still would watch it again. Probably like like if it was on, you'd be like, "Oh yeah, she's all that. That's that's cool. That's all right." Yeah, it's it's she she is all that ish it's all right <laughs> she's all um, all right she's all all right um so i've just a few little bits of trivia to talk about with this movie so this is kind of the director's best work i'd say i, I had a little look it was directed by a guy called robert Icegove, and um looking at what else he directed he directed from justin to kelly which i don't know if you've heard about no what's that it is the Kelly Clarkson and Justin What's-His-Face movie. The person who won the first American Idol, Kelly Clarkson, and then the person who came the runner-up. And they made a rom-com about them off wow. the back of that. And Wait, did they play themselves? The worst. They played themselves. It's supposed to be one of the worst movies ever made. Wow, okay. Um, genuinely awful, awful film. Um, and yeah, so that that's what he went on to make after that. And then I was looking at what else he made. Um, he made a movie called The Ten Commandments, The Musical, <laughs> which stars Val Kilmer. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Val Kilmer as God? Uh, Val Kilmer is Moses. Okay. <laughs> wow. I got time for Val Kilmer, but that is out of this world. I have a lot of time for Val Kilmer in general. I think he's wonderful, even in even in such fiascos as um, the Island of Doctor Moreau. I have so much time for Val Kilmer, um, but yeah. So I might be trying to find this musical and watch it somewhere. Hey, you know what else? There's a musical of that we didn't mention in the last episode, but should have done. The Bridges of Madison County. 
Oh, God. What would that musical be about? <laughs> I don't know. Um, it's, yeah, I cannot think of a more bizarre choice for something to adapt into a musical, but apparently it's it's been on Broadway. It came out a few years ago. It's done relatively okay, I guess, but I haven't yet dared to go and try and look up any of the songs like I did with Waitress because that is an amazing musical and the songs are so good. But, like, yeah, I'm genuinely quite scared to look for the, for that content. Like, is there just going to be, like, a romantic scene where they're just photographing a bridge and they're singing about photographing bridges? Is that what's going to happen? There'll obviously be some big ballad. The, the big, There's always kind of the big final last climactic ballad. That would be when Clint Eastwood's standing there in the rain and um, then she's, like, driving past and he's, like, crying in the rain. I'm crying in the rain. <laughs> that's, that's how it would go. I think they should play up to the the terrible uh, Italian voice of Meryl Streep by incorporating bits of our Godfather musical like background <laughs> music. <laughs> well, she's well, she's you come to me the house. when my husband was out of town, taking the pig to the county show. <laughs> there you go. Uh, I put a foot good food in your belly. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, I'm I I will I will get round to looking looking up some of the songs at some point, but I can't see any way they could possibly do that and not just make it even worse than the source material. Yeah, I don't understand how that would work at all. Um, so so the other bit of um the other bit of she's all that trivia I wanted to bring up was um was so there's a really nice little Sarah Michelle Geller um yes cameo in it as well i know it's the, the cafeteria a I was like, tiny is that, role yeah. Geller? yes it is so were they dating at this point i don't know if they were dating at this point um but this was filmed at the same high school as buffy the vampire slayer ah i thought some of it looked sort of weirdly familiar but i thought that was just because of the genericism of it yeah um yeah so yeah and yeah they are um they're married now um her and freddie prince still um and they're still married um but yeah and then the other um the other thing i wanted to bring up was that m night shyamalan uh claims to have ghost written m night he claims to have ghost written this script what he claims that he wrote it <laughs> um and then the director <laughs> has this ever been proven the director has said that he didn't write it but he was brought in after pre-production um to sort of like be a kind of script doctor a little bit <laughs> right um okay so i mean it's it's clearly not purely m night Shyamalan because there's no arbitrary twist anywhere yeah there's no massive um, twist laney doesn't, doesn't turn out to be an alien <laughs> that was literally what i was about to say <laughs> <laughs> yeah there are no signs that anything is strange about her she doesn't like slap freddie prince jr at some point and then reveal that underneath he's actually got a metal skeleton and he's a robot <laughs> wow because he can't m night show what films had he done at that point with the sixth sense out, out by then did he do that so i think the sixth sense might have came out the same year maybe right um let's have a look yeah the sixth sense was 1999 okay, as well cool. that was a big year for film um yeah um, so it looks like he'd written a couple of things. We hadn't really hit the, the Shyamalan groove. So, <laughs> no. 
No, so The Sixth Sense was the big thing, but by that point he'd written um, a movie called Praying with Anger, in which he also directed and starred, so it looks like a pure Garth Marenghi type thing. Wow, I've not even heard of that. Um, and then a a comedy called Wide Awake. Hmm, not heard of that either. Uh, a comedy drama with Rosie O'Donnell in it, apparently. Oh, wow, okay. So he'd written that. So at least he had some kind of comedy-ish chops by the point that this movie came out. So maybe that's why. And maybe he'd done quite a lot of ghost writing or script doctoring up to this point, just behind the scenes. So maybe that's how he made it. Um, The other thing that he'd done a little bit... So it came out a little bit after The Sixth Sense, but it must have been written at the same time, was that he wrote Stuart Little. What? I did not know that. That is mad. Yeah. I think... Stuart Little actually wasn't that bad as kids films go. I feel like somehow I ended up watching that. I remember it being I remember it being alright. So based on like picture books? Yeah, yeah, it was a book, wasn't it, Stuart Little first. I've I've always had a real hatred, even as a kid, of like live action slapstick. Um so I don't mind it in like a Disney movie or something like that, but I always remember um the live action Flintstones movie is one of my most that hated movies ever. Yeah. And that's from when I watched it as a. That's from my when I watched it as a child, just for the amount of terrible, terrible slapstick in it. I've always hated live action slapstick for as long as I can remember. Well, if you hate live action slapstick, you will love the recent Alvin and the Chipmunks films. Have you seen any of them? Oh, I'm. I, I have not. I've stayed as far away from them as humanly possible. Jason Lee, David Cross. I feel sorry for David Cross actually because like people always like take the piss out of him for being in those films and he's just like I need money you know I've done it he's and he's done a lot of things like did you see um the increasingly poor decisions of Todd Margaret no no it's a sitcom that he wrote and directed and put all his own money into it and stars in it and it is absolutely hilarious and it it really tanks but I thought it was really good it was him he plays um, an American actor, like trying to make it in the UK, and um, put, like making a sitcom with the guy who plays Neil in the Inbetweeners, and it's such an odd pairing, <laughs> right? Okay. Um, but it is so funny, and he lost loads and loads of money making it. So whenever people talk, are like, "Why did you do all this down in the Chipmunks?" He's like, "Yeah, I know it's shit, but I needed the money. Fuck you." So I, I like him a lot. Oh right, okay. I I really like him as an actor. The one thing I have a problem with is when he refers to his own work as shit that he's done in other films. Yeah. I'm just like, "Mm," like, yeah, because I know that he's very much a pure artiste. He, he, you know, he believes in the sanctity of his work and stuff like that. Yeah. So I guess, I guess it comes across as cynical if you assess your own work in that way. Yeah. It's like, well, maybe don't be so hypocritical as to take all of these terrible, terrible things. I know you need the money, but you could make that money doing lower budget things. You know, if you really care that much about what you're doing, you don't have to do Scary Movie too. <laughs> yeah. So was that was that it for the trivia? Is there anything else? So yeah, that was the final bit of trivia I wanted to drop. Was the bombshell that that was the twist that M Night Shyamalan <laughs> would have wanted? <laughs> the chisel that twist. Yeah. The only other thing I wanted to mention was a couple of good lines, which is that um, like the bridges of Madison County, there is a well-timed fuck, just one, which is when. Um, <laughs> yeah. She finds out about the bet. She goes, am I a fucking bet? 
And you're just like, whoa, okay, yes, yeah, you you yell at him. He deserves it. But then followed by that, um, Freddie looks like he's about to cry, but he doesn't. And because I still had the image of Clint Eastwood crying in the bridges of Madison County in my head, I was th- I thought that he was about to like have a huge, massive weep, and he didn't. And then I was a bit disappointed. Oh. And I tried, like I usually do, to write down some of the funny lines, but there weren't any that really made me laugh out loud, apart from <laughs> one. It's really stupid, but in the party, um, Zach and Taylor, the ex-girlfriend, are, are kind of having a sassy conversation with each other, and he says something, and she just goes, Jump up my ass, Zach. And that's like kind of nineties nineties <laughs> insult that just really, really tickled me and I'm gonna try and bring it back. If any if anyone annoys me this week, I'm gonna tell you to jump up my ass. Yeah, that's a good one. Um yeah. Um it's yeah, it's it's there there are these nice little sort of like nineties lines in it. It feels incredibly nineties. It feels more nineties than it should do given that it came out in nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, it actually felt older and more dated than 10 Things I Hate About You as the eternal point of comparison. Yeah, yeah. But it was still fun. But it's fun, yeah. So so how many how many out of 20 would you give it? And what rating system should we use this time? How many pubes on the pizza? <laughs> how many pubes on the pizza out of 20 <laughs> is this film? Um, I'm going to give it a 14, I'd say. It's like that would yeah, it'd be a seven out of ten, fourteen out of twenty, because you know it's it's reasonably good. I'd watch it again, uh, but it's generic. There's nothing hugely amazing about it, but it's it's all right. How about you? Yeah, I I agree entirely. I I would also give it a fourteen pubes out of twenty. It's a it's a it's a moderately puby pizza. Yeah, but not. You got room to a pure pube pizza. You got room to put some anchovies and some other stuff on there if you want, but. Yeah, you can get some chorizo on your pew pizza yeah. as well. There's some space for some Might chorizo. Hide the taste. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it would probably be the bigger issue would be texture. I think more than taste, wouldn't it? Yeah, there wouldn't be much taste there. At least you wouldn't hope there'd be any taste. It would be the texture. What would it take for you to eat a pizza with your own pubes on it? Um, Is there sort of like a, a monetary value you'd put on it? Fifty k. Uh, maybe, maybe this. It depends whose pubes and how much and how big the pizza was. Like if it was, those are quite kind of small pizzas. So for one that was that size in the film with that relatively small amount, I don't know, ten grand, maybe less, five. <laughs> I don't know. I'm rapidly dropping down the scale. <laughs> yeah. It depends on how desperate we yeah. are for money. If it was my own pubes, I'd go as low as like a grand. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, if it was my own. Because I know I'm I'm a clean individual. <laughs> if it was somebody else's, if it was someone who I knew had good hygiene and no venereal diseases, probably 50, 50k, I'd say, to eat a pube pizza. If it was someone, if it was a complete wild card option who I didn't know, I'd maybe bump... Like you have no idea where they've come from. You don't even know if they're from a human or not. They, they they might be chimpanzee pubes for all you know. <laughs> Lion pubes. <laughs> Lion pubes. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just the first um, animal that I thought of. <laughs> <laughs> I think because the lions have been playing in the rugby. I don't even like rugby, but everyone's been going on about it. Oh, that tickled me something. Um, tickle me like a pube in my throat. Um, I'd go. 
I, yeah, if it was a wild card option and it was definitely a human pube, I'd go 100k. If it was potentially an animal pube, I'd maybe go up to 500k because I don't know where that animal's been. Yeah, yeah. You don't know what it's but got. But I still fancy that carrying. I wouldn't. I, I still fancy that my immune system would be able to fight off whatever disease that lion is carrying. Oh, yeah, yeah, me too. I'd be less worried about the the risk than about just the kind of disgusting idea of it. But yeah. So, yeah, if, if any of our rich listeners want to pay us a lot of money to eat a pube pizza, we're open. <laughs> we, we are. Get you know, in touch. That, that can... That could help fund sensations, you know. So exactly, yeah. We we're still we we haven't done released our kind of crowdfunding drive yet, but it could it could help to kind of kick us off or give us at least a base from which to start with, to start on the marketing of that, get a head start. So, yeah, if you're if you're feeling generous, you know, it'll be going to a good cause. Yes, yeah. Please get in touch if you can. Yeah, drop us a line um, at bigboysdon'tcrypodcast at gmail dot com or on Twitter at bigboysdon'tpod. For sure. Make sure the make sure the subject line is peep pizza. Yeah. <laughs> as well. Yeah. We we have a lot of emails, so it might get lost in the in the inbox if you don't put peep pizza in capitals as the as the um subject line. <laughs> yeah, remember those caps, please. Yep. All caps. All cats. Speaking of sensations, I um have to give a shout out to my friend Zoe from work who has revealed herself as someone who fancies Adam Richman. And as such, want, has asked if she could audition to play the female lead. And to be fair, we oh. have not yet even thought about who would play the female lead. So maybe we should no, hold a kind of true. open casting at some point. I th- I think, yeah, we need to do what they did with the um, with the new Star Wars movies, where we need a complete unknown. Yeah. Um, so she could be in the shot. Yeah, Although you'd, so. you'd worry about the... If there was real chemistry between them, that could be very, very good. But I think he is married. So it might be crossing a line. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I'm not sure. But anyway, doesn't the lead end up with Guy Fieri? Or is that TBC? Like, Guy Fieri wins the battle, right? Oh. Adam Richman's more of the villain figure. Yeah, Adam Richman was going to be the villain, much like in real life, where he is the villain of the two. Um, yeah, you know, he wears a cape. He he does. When, when people aren't looking, he attaches a little um, villain moustache to his face. And runs around going, ha, 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 ha. Um, yeah, no, we haven't established. I, I think the idea was that Guy Fieri was going to be the victor, but maybe this is the kind of movie that could go with a really bittersweet ending where the, where yeah, the love in- underdog story. Yeah, the love interest goes off with the villain at the end, but Guy Fieri wins. So it's like, well, I won the eating contest, but at what cost? He wins the moral victory and he the, of getting the people who work in the hot dog mines to be eating the hot dogs. I mean, that's still, that's the main, what we have to do is make sure that when we construct it, that that feels like the main victory and that then the loss of his love interest to Adam Richmond feels like, yeah, makes it bittersweet. Yeah. Yeah, I think, hmm. yeah, that, that sounds like a good idea. We'll do it that way around. So it all comes down to the hot dog mines. And that way we can keep our lead actress happy. By allowing her to yep. be the love interest of Adam Richmond. Exactly. Yeah, we've got to make sure everyone's happy. <laughs> so it's my choice next. It is. So I've been thinking, I think I've mentioned this to you already, but it's definitely about time that we watched a real, real stinker, a real, a real dog of a film. So I'm going to, I'm going to drop in with Wills and Kate, the movie, because we didn't watch it together, did we? No, no, I've never seen it. You've never seen it. I watched it with Adam about a year ago, um, 
just the two of us watching it on our own. <laughs> and um it's it's really something. I don't want to spoil the surprise, but it's um it's a very, very low budget romanticized version of the story of Prince William and Kate Middleton that takes you sort of from their early days of university right up to the royal wedding that was a few years ago and it's it's absolutely it's incredible. So I I'll leave it there. I won't say any more, but I'm very much looking forward to you having to endure it. <laughs> okay. I'll brace myself. <laughs> oh. Cool. Well, it's been nice talking to you, man. We've run a little yeah. long, I think. Yeah, this has been an intense episode. We we got sidetracked by David Icke uh, for a fair while, yeah. I think. I think that's that's going to become a running thing. But yeah, there's actually quite a lot to say about She's All That, considering it's such a generic film. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But, but, but part of the reason why it's so interesting to discuss is to see where it fell down in comparison to other movies and why that genericism took hold. So yeah, it's it's been good. Nice chat. Yeah. Cool. All right, and well, this has been the Big Boys Don't Cry podcast. We'll see you next week. We'll talk about Wills and Kate, the movie. Yeah, can't wait. Bye-bye.